podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. morning good afternoon good evening it's wednesday it's snow day here in west yorkshire the pot of tea is on the go and we're going to take a deep dive into the decade that we bizarrely call the noughties and to the football of its time this is a noughties nostalgia podcast this is episode 27 the big man beast himself the big wee man the prediction king is behind me so if you hear any untoward noises that's him laid on my bed speaking of snow it was snowing in German fans' hearts in 2014 as Yogi Love brought home the World Cup for a fourth time for the Germans, a European record. It's 61 years since he came out of the womb, so we'll be celebrating his birthday by taking a look back at his career. We're staying in Germany for the table never lies until the Bundesliga of 2002-2003. And we're going to look at Jose Mourinho's first in at Chelsea. It was the dawn of the 1980s. Jose Mourinho had burst onto the scene at clubs such as Rio Ave and Belenense. His playing career as a midfielder lasted just shy of seven years so he wanted to do anything he could to get into the game that we call football he was a youth coach he was a scout and then in 1992 he got his big break he became a translator for Bobby Robson the new manager of Sporting Club de Portugal Sporting Lisbon Mourinho would move with Bobby to Porto in a couple of years time to an insane amount of success two Primeira Ligas one Tassa de Portugal and even a Champions (laughs) Two Premier Leagues, one Tassa de Portugal and a Champions League semi-final. As Bobby Robson went to Barcelona, so would Mourinho. He moved to Barcelona in 1996, that R9 season, the Ronaldo season, where Barcelona won a Cup Winners' Cup and a Copa del Rey. Robson would leave pushed aside to the sidelines under the Barcelona regime to take a seat upstairs in the board whilst Lou van Gaal managed the club. Bobby Robson didn't want that, he left. Mourinho was kept on at Barcelona as an assistant, an assistant to Louis van Gaal. They would win a couple of La Liga titles and Mourinho even got to coach the Barcelona B team in his spare time. He would leave in 2000, Mourinho that is, to replace Jupp Hankers at Benfica, a huge job for a first job in football management. But he would be gone by December 2000. After a presidential shift, he pushed his hand and stated that he wanted a pay rise after a good start to life as the Benfica manager. Needless to say, it didn't last. Bobby Robson did want him to return to by his side when he became Newcastle United manager. If only there was a what-if guy on YouTube or someone there who'd write an article about that, and then he would... Uh... The deal was for Bobby Robson to leave in two years and Mourinho to take over, but Mourinho, Mourinho knew that he was Bobby Robson was never going to leave his hometown club so easily, so... Mourinho stayed in Portugal. Another half season, this time at Uniao de Leira, which saw the small club contest in the European places. He had them in round third or fourth, but he would leave in January 2002 for a bigger job because FC Porto came calling. Uniao would drop to seventh, whilst Porto finished in a European spot in third place. Mourinho would bring in Nuno Valente, Paulo Ferreira, Maniche whilst the core of Vitor Baia in goal, Costinha in midfield alongside Deco, Postiga up front and Ricardo Carvalho at the back, Porto had a magnificent team. The league obviously followed a UEFA Cup win over Celtic, followed in 2003-3-2 and a Tassa de Portugal, which meant a treble. 
Mourinho followed that up with just two, two trophies in 2004, but they were the league and the behemoth that was the Champions League, following on from Porter's win over Bayern Munich in 1987 with a Champions League, a 3-0 win in Gelsenkirchen over Monaco, which was quite routine when you look back at the match, really. He wouldn't stay in Porto, though, because he was away to Chelsea after Liverpool turned to Rafael Benitez instead. Mourinho had commented um, that he did want the Liverpool job because Chelsea, he thought, was a, a smaller project and a, a one destined for failure. Instead, he announced himself as the special one. Just six months after he danced down the Old Trafford touchline, of course, beating Manchester United in the second round of the Champions League on the way to winning Porto's second Champions League. He brought Paolo Ferreira and Ricardo Carvalho with him, bringing in alongside Petacek, Iron Robin, Didier Drogba in the same summer because obviously this was a time of no FFP and a time where Roman Abramovich just threw money at players. Obviously, Chelsea had John Terry, Frank Lampard as that core and they were away. They conceded one goal in the opening eight Premier League matches, which included wins at home to Manchester United and at Liverpool. And then October the 16th, 2004, came the only blot in Chelsea's Premier League copybook that year, a Nicholas Anelka penalty for Manchester City in a 1-0 win at what was then was called the City of Manchester Stadium. Three weeks later, after a win against Everton, Chelsea climbed to top spot. They would never be usurped, as Arsenal's 49-match unbeaten run was dead in the water later that November with a loss at Old Trafford, of course. Chelsea would win 20 and draw six of the remaining Premier League games. They finished 12 ahead of Arsenal, 18 ahead of Manchester United and 37 ahead of Liverpool, the job that he wanted. And obviously Liverpool would have to wait until 2020 for their 19th league title. Mourinho would bag his first trophy in England long before then, however. A 3-2 win against a club that would become their, one of their biggest rivals in that time. Probably more for Liverpool than it was for against Everton and Manchester United, which is phenomenal really when you think about it but the amount of times that they faced each other league cup final there 3-2 in Cardiff played each other must have been six seven eight times in the Champions League alone which the first of which clash Liverpool would get revenge in that semi-final with a goal from Luis Garcia that Mourinho of course declared that it came from the moon because he didn't believe that it went in um, I think it did I'm not too sure I did do a what if on this so if I remember I'll put a Put a little card in the corner of this video so you can watch that one. So Mourinho finished with 95 points in the 2004-05 season in his first year at Chelsea. Chelsea's first title in 50 years, their second overall. I posed the question, is that team the best in Premier League history to our followers on Twitter? Harry Holland came back. It's in the top three alongside Arsenal's Invincibles and Manchester United's team around 2008 which I've got in my shortlist, I can't deny. Uh, Quirk also said Prime Mourinho was a breath of fresh air, a fresh of breath air. He really did a lot to upset the Manchester United and Arsenal hegemony. The 2005 team, although very good, doesn't have a zero in the L column. It has to be referenced for years and justification has to be made. You say Invincibles and everybody knows who that is. And of course that wouldn't be Mourinho, but Arsene Wenger's team the season before. But let's run the numbers. Yes, Arsenal have the record for zero losses in a Premier League season that has never been done, ever. Obviously, you have to go back to Preston North End's 19th century team, but how many games did they play? I think they played about 20 games, so. Chelsea's 2005 team won three more games and Arsenal's Invincibles, 29-26. to 26. That 29 wins in a 38-game season was a record at the time, not anymore, obviously. Um, the 15 goals conceded over 38 games, another record that still stands today. 95 points was a record as well. 
uh, five more than Arsenal Wenger's Arsenal. And they conceded 11 goals less than Arsenal Wenger's Arsenal. So, obviously, not losing a game is a huge achievement in a season. I think over all competitions, Chelsea's 2005 team would have lost less. He's definitely one or two in it um, because Chelsea did lose to Newcastle in the FA Cup. They lost to Porto in a dead rubber in the Champions League. And they would have lost that, obviously, that, that semi-final to Liverpool. So that's four games overall. Arsenal's Invincibles lost a few more. I think they lost a League Cup semi-final. They definitely lost an FA Cup semi-final to Man United and that game to Chelsea. So, and yeah, so it's definitely tight on in terms of losses in all competitions. But in terms of looking at the whole numbers, I think you have to look at the other competitions that they're in. So, for example... The Manchester United treble team of 1999, they got 79 points in the Premier League season, which wouldn't get you in second position in recent years. So, But they did win the Champions League. They did win the FA Cup. They almost won the League Cup, to be fair, that no one really talks about. They got to the quarterfinals there. Um, but you have to consider the amount of competitions that they were in to class them as great or good. So, for example, Antonio Conte's 93-point season in 2017 30 wins in 38 games, which beat Mourinho's record in 2004. They weren't in Europe. They got knocked out of the League Cup in the fourth round. They did get to the final of the FA Cup where Chelsea could have had a double, but they lost to Arsenal, of course. Now, speaking of other Chelsea teams, Carlo Ancelotti's 2010 double winning team is another great example. I don't think that gets enough love. They were just free scoring and it goes to show how good that 2008 Manchester United team, as Harry Holland said there, how good they were because they kept pace from right to the final day despite Chelsea scoring a, a record goal amount, obviously. That will be beaten by a couple of teams that we have to talk about, really. Manchester City's Centurions slash domestic treble winners, which both got the record for 32 wins in a 38-game season, which is tied with, obviously, Liverpool's team of 2020, all with 32 wins in the past three seasons, which goes to show how high the bar has been raised. 100 points, 98 points, 99 points. That's the level. Well, it was the level pre-COVID. And when that Man City and the Klopp and Pep teams were like vying for their best um, their best seasons of all time. But let's look at the Liverpool team. Obviously, COVID hampers it slightly. And they won the Champions League the season before. And they've been at a high level, close to City, for a couple of seasons before. So they, they were reaching that natural end, well, re- approaching a natural end to that big cycle. They got knocked out in the Champions League last 16, knocked out of the fifth round of the FA Cup, knocked out of the quarterfinals of the League Cup. So, yeah, it, obviously it's impressive, 99 points, dropping two points in the first, what is it, 20-odd games. But they didn't really do much else. They won one trophy. Obviously, they won the Champions League before and Liverpool fans love to say that it's a double when it really isn't. <laughs> um, but you look at the two, even the 2009 Man United team, they won the League Cup. They got to the semi-finals of the FA Cup. They won the Club World Cup like Liverpool won the Club World Cup in uh, 2019. Only got 86, uh, got 90 points. So nine less than Liverpool and that team doesn't get talked about as much as the 2020 team will get talked about. Obviously, Liverpool may or may not retain that title as Manchester United 07-09 did retain their title. And I think that's the mark of a good team and a great team. So obviously, Arsenal's Invincibles, the achievement is fantastic as I've spoken of before on this channel. 
But Mourinho retaining the title 05-06. 06 obviously records-wise and numbers-wise isn't as good, but this Chelsea's third league title in their history, so it's great, obviously. Pep's, Barcel- Pep's Barcelona, Pep's Man City winning the league title back-to-back. Alex Ferguson's Man United sides winning three in a row twice. So obviously achievements like Blackburn and Leicester goes without saying they are phenomenal achievements. But numbers-wise, and obviously both not being in Europe, not competing really in the cup competitions, going out in the first few rounds of both cup competitions, even though it is a big achievement to take a smaller club historically, it doesn't rank alongside, for me, Conte, Ancelotti, Mourinho, their Chelsea teams, Klopp's Liverpool, Pep's Barcelona, Wenger's Invincibles, and Fergie's treble winners of 99. What will Jose Mourinho's Chelsea legacy be? So after title number two, Chelsea's third ever title in 2006, there was no progress in Europe. Semi-final defeat followed by a last 16 defeat in the Champions League. Something that does get swept under the rug is what could have been a potential quadruple in 2007, forgotten about now. They'd won a League Cup against Arsenal with that brawl and that John Terry horrific injury in Cardiff in the last League Cup final in Cardiff. They'd beaten... Manchester United in the first FA Cup at the New Wembley, so the double was achieved. But the Champions League, they went out to another semi-final, obviously against Liverpool, put them out on penalties. Fine margins there, so that could have been a cup treble. And then they took the Premier League race to the penultimate day. So that could have easily been a quadruple, and then Mourinho would have been the best ever manager going. And he would leave a few months after that season ended, after a nil-nil with Rosenborg, which seems now like an absolutely insane decision. But, you know coming off the back of Frank Lampard's sacking last week. It proves to work for Abramovich and Chelsea. So Chelsea would get to the Champions League final, obviously, after that, in that same season under the mighty Avram Grant. Mourinho, though, would go on to win the Champions League a second time for himself, winning the treble with Inter Milan in 2010, before turning, leave, staying in Bernabeu after that final, staying with Real Madrid, winning the league and the cup there, still faltering in the Champions League, of course, before returning to Stamford Bridge. All the while, Chelsea's mammoth undefeated run at home, under him at least, still continued. It would end in April 2014. 77 Mourinho matches at home for Chelsea. One defeat. And it wasn't by Manchester City, the eventual champions, and it wasn't by Liverpool, the team that looked to be winning the league. It wasn't Spurs, it wasn't Manchester United. It wasn't Arsenal, but it was Conor Wickham, Fabio Barini, Gus Poyet and Sunderland. And it was only his fifth ever home defeat in 14 years of management. Just let that sink in. February 23rd, 2002, his first defeat. A 3-2 loss to Bayramar at home in what was his first month as Porto manager. The other three up until that point, you have to go to April 2011, a loss to Sporting Gijon 1-0 a loss to Real Zaragoza 3-2 and then earlier on in the following season a Clasico defeat in December of 2011 so to put that into perspective five defeats in 14 years of management at home he would lose four home matches in his third season of his second spell at Chelsea Crystal Palace Southampton Liverpool and obviously Bournemouth there he's now gone on to lose 10 further home matches in across the spells at Old Trafford and White Hart Lane He will go down as Chelsea's most successful manager, winning half of their league titles. That's three out of six. And he'll go down as Chelsea's longest tenured manager under Abramovich, which is no mean feat when you consider 
the Ancelotti and the Conte teams that we've uh, already discussed, those managers were gone after two seasons and they'd achieved absolute greatness. Um, but he'll, he'll never be the man that delivered the Champions League to Chelsea. That would, of course, turn to Roberto Di Matteo in 2012. After this short, short break, we'll be wishing a happy birthday to Yogi Love, the current German national team manager. Happy birthday, happy birthday, it's 61st birthday, Yogi Love, well done, congratulations. So, as Mourinho was playing for Rayo Ave in the early 1980s, Yogi Love was turning out for Stuttgart and Eintracht Frankfurt, so I'm not going to profess to know how he adopted the Enganche or Trequartista roles as a central attacking midfielder as a footballer. But Love's career ended in 1995, he ran up four under-21 caps for West Germany, and his professional football management came in 1996... The year where, of course, football came home, at least to Germany anyway. His first match, well, it was only a bloody 4-0 win over Schalke in August 1996. Schalke, the eventual UEFA Cup winners that year. Love that season would end in glory himself, winning Stuttgart's third DFB Pokal trophy in 1997, where two goals from Giovanni Elbert beat Energy Cottbus in the final. He built on that, taking Stuttgart to a second European final the following season. But nine years on from a UEFA Cup defeat to Napoli and Diego Maradona, Löw and Stuttgart fell to Chelsea and Gianfranco Zola, 1-0 in the penultimate ever Cup Winners' Cup final. He would leave for Fenerbahce in 1998, managing 89 matches for Stuttgart. He would only manage another 121 club matches between 1998 and 2004 in what has been quite a bizarre management career, really. Uh, Fenerbahce managed for a year, Karlsruhe managed for a year, Adana Spa managed for a year, Tyrol Innsbruck brought the Austrian Bundesliga title home, but it was only there for a year following the club's bankruptcy, which obviously led to his unemployment. He would be out of the game for a year before he returned to Austria-Vienna, where he only stayed for a year. And then we go back to Germany. Germany had just crashed out of the Euro 2004 tournament at the groups. They'd drawn to the Dutch thanks to a Ruud van Nistelrooy equaliser at the death, and they'd drawn to Latvia. Latvia. And thanks to a late defeat to Czech Republic via golden boot winning Milan Baros, with 13 minutes to go, they were out. The root and branch revamp of German football that was promised after a similar exit of Euro 2000 continued. The man himself, Jürgen Klinsmann, came in. And Yogi Love, who shared his attacking values, joined him as a system. The cult of personality, enigmatic Klinsmann, was perfect for Germany as the host at the 2006 World Cup whilst Jürgen Love was working his magic underneath. In the opening game of the tournament, I'll never forget, I skived off school. Just to watch this, Friday afternoon, Germany smashed through Costa Rica 4-2. They squeaked through Poland with a last-minute winner and put three beyond Ecuador in Berlin. Sweden in the last 16 were picked off early through Lukas Podolski and Argentina were pegged back late on by the Golden Boot winner Miroslav Klose and typically they were beaten on penalties. However, the run would end for Germany at the semi-final stage thanks to the Berlin Wall of Fabio Cannavaro and two late extra-time goals which thwarted them in the semi-final. Jürgen Klinsmann would claim he was burnt out and he departed. Yogi Love stepped into the breach. Germany went one better in Austria and Switzerland at Euro 2008, losing to Spain in the final. Before another defeat to Spain meant Germany were beaten at yet another semi-final stage in South Africa at the subsequent World Cup. The semi-final stage would become a stumbling block for Love and Germany. In Euro 2012, where they were what I seem to remember shockingly beaten by Italy, Balotelli scoring them two early goals that insane celebration top off 
pecks out. But 2014 would be the marquee year for Germany and Love. 4-0 they thrashed Portugal in the opening game. Thomas Muller hat-trick, and then they progressed beyond Ghana and USA with a draw and a 1-0 win. Squeaking through in the end, let's say. Algeria almost stunned Germany 32 years on from the disgrace of Gijon. Love going for a high defensive line. His tactics were lambasted in the press, obviously. Aside from the Portugal match, they've sort of waded through the tournament. But the best teams, or not the best teams, the winning teams at World Cups, sometimes tend to do that, as we've seen with France at the previous tournament and Spain, 1-0 in their way in South Africa. So Love and Germany would save face in a 1-0 win against France, and then the ultimate humiliation came in the semi-finals. 7-1 against Brazil. We all remember where we were when Germany just rattled through Brazil. Thiago Silva and Neymarless Brazil, let's not forget, and romped to a 5-0 scoreline at halftime. Miroslav Klose, just to sprinkle some salt into the wounds there, beating Ronaldo's World Cup goal-scoring record in Brazil against Brazil to knock Brazil out of the semi-finals. Brazil would finish fourth, obviously. Argentina were done in the final 1-0, akin to Italia 90. Germany had their fourth World Cup. Mario Goetze winning the tournament. Jogi Löw immortalised in football history in Germany. But the same trend continued in 2016. Semi-final... Another loss, bowing out to Antoine Griezmann and the hosts France, who of course would go on to lose to Portugal in the final in Paris. Yogi Love's job came under serious threat in the following World Cup, though, however. They were beaten by a Hervin Lozano goal against Mexico in the opening match, saved at the death by Tony Crows in the last minute, coming from behind against Sweden, and then obviously the miracle of Kazan. South Korea needed a minor miracle to qualify and a whole host of results to go their way. Germany just needed to win. Um, Manuel Neuer picked up the ball 20 yards from the South Korean goal, uh, lost it, and South Korea were at the races, winning 2-0. Germany had returned to the group stage exits of 2000-2004, but under a bit more dramatic circumstances this time. It was their first first first-round exit in the World Cup since 1938, when they lost a round of 16 match to Switzerland when the tournament was just a round robin, so it was their first ever group stage exit in the World Cup. They'd only staved off relegation from the newly formed Nations League thanks to the tournament's restructuring, so that's how bad it had got. But still, Love kept his job with the looming figure of RB coach Ralph Ragnick looming in the background there. Germany will face the likes of Romania, Iceland, North Macedonia, Armenia and Liechtenstein in a World Cup qualifying group whilst the group of death featuring Portugal, France and Hungary awaits love in the Euros this summer. So I asked my followers to rank the tournaments that love had been at at the World Cup without 2018 World Cup, because I tend to think with most of my followers being British that that would... I left out 2018 because with majority of my followers being British, there would be a slight bias there with England, obviously, doing very, very well. Our first correspondence comes from Jake Collinson, where he ranks them as follows. 2006, 2014 and 2010. 2010 goes into last place because of their vuvuzelas. Can't agree more. Nick Hale tweets us, I went to the 2010 World Cup in person. My greatest memories will always be that World Cup, especially the semi-final between Spain and Germany, which I watched live. Lucky enough to see Spain and Germany play two times each, but 2006, admittedly, was a better World Cup all round. Joseph Kiffin agrees. 2006 was my first World Cup and was boss. 
2010 was something. Being in Africa, it was brilliant. And 2014, the goals were unbelievable. Left, right and centre, obviously. James Rodriguez scoring the best of those. Quirk sends us a similar opinion. 2006, because that's the last we saw of Zidane, Ronaldinho, Totti and Nesta on the biggest stage. And then 2010, because I got to attend, but it was admittedly an average World Cup. And then 2014, because Germany showed the world that a well-drilled machine will beat a team with a talisman nine times out of ten. Good friend of the show, Matty Mac, tweets in Nostalgia-wise, 2006, 2010, 2014. Quality-wise, 2014, 20, 2006 and 2010. And then for the summer, 2010, 2006, 2014. But overall, 2006 wins out. I have to agree. And I also agree with left-sided problem who tweeted us, 2006-2014-2010, 2006 had a nice range of good but similar matches, great players on great form, feel-good factor about the German hosts and the semi-final against Italy is one of the biggest games, best games I've ever seen. So for, my, for me, in terms of personal preference, I'd rank it 2006-2014-2010. In terms of the drama and the football, 2014-2006 and 2010. The Jabulani in 2010 for me ruined it as a spectacle, no stars performed, Fernando Torres was injured, Wayne Rooney just spat on cameras. Messi, Ronaldo, I think they got one goal between them. That was Ronaldo's dodgy little goal against North Korea. Um, Luis Fabiano turned up, I guess. <laughs> and um, David Villa had scored a couple of goals against bang average opposition. Both of 2006 and 2010 had low scoring rates. 2006 also had a, an insane amount of cards, thanks in part to Graham Paul and the well-remembered Battle of Nuremberg. Uh, but 2006 was, it wasn't the first World Cup for me that I can remember fully wise. I think I was speaking about this last week. I remember the 1998 World Cup in patches. So I remember the England games and the final and Holland doing well. 2002, I remember from start to finish. So people tend to say the best World Cup's your first one. Um, I disagree. I think the best World Cup I've ever seen was 2006 for nostalgic reasons. England had a really great team, even though 2018, they did better. And the summer, for me, felt better. It didn't rain for three months. It was great drinking, watching England get into a semi-final. The national mood had been lifted from several years of um, politics, let's say, and Everything for four weeks just took a break and it was magnificent. But for me, 2006, in terms of that blind optimism still being there, everyone thinking they were better than everybody else in terms of England, which politically wise, that's not falling away, unfortunately. Um, but we had the best team England wise um, in terms of names, but not in terms of team, which led to England's downfall. Same can't be levelled at Germany in 2014 who had the names and they had the team, which is thanks to Yogi Love. We'll be remaining in Germany and going to the Bundesliga and February 2003 for the table never lies after this short, short, short break. Last week we had a gripping title race on the table never lies between L'Areal and Real. This week though, we have the Bundesliga, so... We have Bayern domination. But let's kick off at the other end of the table. Let's kick off with the demise of Bayer Leverkusen. Leverkusen, of course, could have won the treble. Didn't win anything, which is why they're called Bayern Leverkusen. And after that successful or nearly successful season, Zeroberto and Michael Ballack were both away. And they were away to Bayern Munich, so things never really change. 
they weren't replaced, not replaced sufficiently anyway. My first match at Old Trafford, a little sidebar, was to see Manchester United in the Champions League in November 2002 against this Bayer Leverkusen team and a team that had uh, snuffed out Manchester United in the semi-finals the previous season with a couple of draws, sneaking through on away goals. So everybody thought it was going to be a tough, tough, tough match. But it was a easy as piss tuna win. <laughs> and yeah, that says it all. So six months after holding United out in the semi-finals, they were dispatched with ease. Would go on to lose home and away to Newcastle in the second round group stage as well. So Leverkusen, 18 years ago today, are safe from relegation by goal difference. The days of the relegation playoffs aren't here yet. Leverkusen, you'd expect them to pull away like we've seen with uh, Dortmund and in Klopp's season, last season, but they wouldn't pull away. And with two matches remaining, they were in the relegation zone. They trailed Armenia Bielefeld by two points. The threat of relegation was seriously real. Uh, thankfully, on the penultimate weekend, at least for Leverkusen, they thrashed 1860 Munich 3-0. And the inverse of that scoreline for Bielefeld, losing 3-0 at Hansa Rostock, themselves securing safety, meant Leverkusen had scraped out of the relegation zone and were ready to survive. The fate of their season was in their hands. They travelled down to already down Nuremberg, whilst Bielefeld hosted mid-table Hanover. Energy Cottbus, second mention today for them, so congratulations, would go down with Nuremberg. And ultimately, Bielefeld, as Bastok scored the winning goal in Nuremberg, for Leverkusen and Bielefeld lost 1-0. Kaiserslautern found themselves in similar sticky situations, falling from the heights of being champions in 1998 to 14th this season, a place above Leverkusen. Their 2-0 loss on the final day to Hertha Berlin would help the Berlin club leapfrog Werder Bremen into 5th, and 5th place in those days meant the final UEFA Cup spot, whilst Werder would join Schalke and Wolfsburg in the Intertoto Cup that <laughs> Beautiful trophy, that pre-season tournament that granted three spots in the UEFA Cup, which was mind-blowing. Werder would bow out to Passion of Austria in the semi-finals of the Intertoto Cup, while Schalke beat that same Austrian team to win it and plough on through to the UEFA Cup, whilst Wolfsburg would beat in home and away to Perugia in the final. No German sides would make it beyond the second round of the UEFA Cup, um, a trophy that German teams don't really take too seriously, aside from, I think, Frankfurt got to a semi-final a couple of years back. But that's about it, really. <laughs> so, Dortmund finished third and exited the Champions League qualification to Club Bruges in the 2003-04 season. Yeah, they would lose to Sochaux in the second round, whilst Schalke bowed out on penalties to Bromby in the same round and Hertha Berlin exited to a Polish team that I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce in the first round, I'm sorry. Uh, Bayern would be, of course, as they often are, the last remaining German team in European UEFA competition. But that was only by the virtue of playing their last 16 second leg against Real Madrid a day after Stuttgart's elimination at the hands of Chelsea. But to get to that stage in the 2003-04 season, Stuttgart had a little miracle to get into automatic Champions League qualification with a penultimate day loss to Bayern Munich. However, Dortmund were held to a nil-nil in Kaiserslautern, which actually kept the onus on Dortmund's hands to qualify for the Champions League automatically in second place as the top two places in the Bundesliga could only grant automatic qualification back in those days, whilst third place would qualify for the qualifiers. Dortmund, however, drew 1-1 at home to Energy Cottmus, which is a third mention of the day for that team that I don't think I've ever mentioned or said out loud ever before today. Um, Stuttgart would beat Wolfsburg 
a Stuttgart team with Timo Hildebrand in net, which is a fantastic goalkeeper, Kleb, Karanje, and most importantly, Sean Dundee. So under Felix Magat, they had their best day since 1992. What, yeah, they won the Bundesliga. They would qualify with Manchester United in the round of 16 the following season in the Champions League groups to get to the round of 16, going out to Claudio Ranieri's Chelsea via an own goal in Germany. Losing 1-0 on aggregate. Bayern Munich wouldn't get far into the Champions League for another seven years bowing out, of course, in the 2003-04 season to Real Madrid in the last 16 they wouldn't win either the Bundesliga or the Pokal the following season, which they did both of with ease in 2003, but that's a story for another day in a couple of weeks. Stuttgart would fade briefly, but return to win the Bundesliga in 2007. Again, another story for another day, perhaps in a few more months' time. Stuttgart would only return to the latter stages of the Champions League once, where they would lose to Lionel Messi's Barcelona in 2010. They even got relegated in 2016, although they came back up immediately. But then they got relegated again in 2019, although came back up immediately, again. But now, as they are, they're under Pellegrino Matassaro. He has steered them to a good mid-table footballing team. They're currently 10th, 15 points off relegation, 8 points off a relegation playoff, and 8 points from the Champions League. The epitome of mid-table, but they're doing it the right way. Those, though, are stories for another day far into the future. But today we're going to end it with a 2000s trivial teaser, as we always do. Welcome back. This is the 2000s Trivial Teaser and we have one correct answer and it is the man himself, Podfather Mags, as he often does, getting the correct answer. We had a fullback last week. We had a fullback who had been managed by Alan Pardew and Dennis Wise. We had a fullback who had played alongside Dicanio, Fabian Delft, Sasa Illich, Herman Horidison and Aristo Stoichkov. And that man was, of course, the Bulgarian fullback, the Charlton legend, Radostin Kishishev. A staple of my f- FPL teams in the uh, mid to early to mid 2000s, though. So today, we're staying in the back line, but we've got a central defender. A central defender who has been managed by Graham Souness and Harry Redknapp. This central defender has played alongside John Anarisa, Dave Besant, Mark Hughes, Dan Petrescu, and of course Peter Crouch. And again, those names the centre back who had been managed by Graham Souness, Harry Redknapp. Played alongside John Anarisa, Dave Besant, Mark Hughes, Dan Petrescu, and the man himself, Peter Crouch. So if you think you know the answer, tweet me at whatif underscore YouTube or leave your answer down below in the comments section. We'll be back next week. Next week we'll be back with A Table Never Lies, of course. Remaining in the 2003 season and the Serie A title. We'll be looking at Salif Jao and Senegal of the 2002 World Cup. And sticking with the Chelsea theme, we're going to take a look at Carlo Ancelotti's time at Chelsea. Was sacking him the right decision? Are they an outsider for one of the best teams to ever play in the Premier League? All that and more, more including Busby Babes, Spain, the Munich Air disaster, Sir Alex Ferguson, Hazel, Ledley King, UEFA Cup finalist, West Bromwich Albion, Ronaldo v Football on our channel this week. At what if underscore YouTube on our Twitter where we talk a little bollocks mainly and... Keep it right here on our YouTube account for all of the aforementioned videos. We'll see you next week. Sports Social Podcast Network.